Welcome to the Parent Toolbox podcast from the Inventive Minds Child, Youth, and Family Center. We are a not-for-profit organization helping families with day-to-day parenting ups and downs from expectancy to teen. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining this Inventive Minds Family Center workshop hosted by myself, Adam Stavis, your youth development mentor and coach. Today's workshop topic is wonderfully titled, Honey, I Wrecked the Kids. <laughs> Understanding why children misbehave. Inventive Minds Child, Youth, and Family Support Center is a not-for-profit organization helping families and children. They also provide parenting courses and mediation for families. They also help families by creating parenting plans, child support, spousal support, and asset evaluation. Connect with Inventive Minds to learn more about their school, new mom services, their therapist and practitioner for day-to-day parenting challenges, support programs for newborns to teens, and adult group support programs for reconnecting with your children and emotionally attuned parenting. Uh, To clarify, I am a youth development coach and I am not a licensed medical doctor, psychologist, psychiatrist, master's in family and child counseling or master's in social work. If you believe that you or anyone you know needs the help of a licensed medical doctor, psychologist, psychiatrist, master's in family and child counseling or master's in social work, do speak with your family doctor, local walk-in clinic or hospital. Today we have the awesome Allison Schaefer. Yay! So good to have you back, Allison. Great to be here, Adam. Allison is a Delirian family counselor, author, and internationally acclaimed expert who empowers families by sharing her principles, rules, and tools for raising cooperative and resilient kids. Allison's education background includes a BSc MA Counseling, OACCPP Masters of Arts Counseling from the Adler School of Chicago, and an Honors Bachelor of Science from the University of Waterloo. Allison is also an international TEDx speaker and an international best-selling author of three parenting books, published by HarperCollins Canada. Breaking the Good Mom Myth is one of them. The other is Honey, I Wrecked the Kids and her latest Ain't Misbehaving. So we have a lot of questions for you today. Let's not waste any moments at all. First of all, uh, Honey, I Wrecked the Kids. This is an awesome, awesome title. Uh, How did you come up with this title? Of course, it's a joke and a play on the words of the popular movie, uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. But the reason I came up with the title is that I was probed by my publicist to say, get inside the minds of the parents that you provide services to. And what is their burning issue? When they go to the bookstore and they want to see a title, jump off the shelf to say, that's me, that's my problem. And I said, oh my gosh, you know, most parents come to me with this tremendous guilt that they feel like the way they're parenting their kids for all their good intentions, that they have this guilt that they have wrecked their kids, that you have to open up the bank account because they just know they're gonna need psychological services later. And then this is a bit of a universal and that maybe we've even participated in a bit in our parenting to to realize we're getting these kids who are giving us some pushback. People have really enjoyed the title and it really is universal. We're all in this together. Tell us why this book stands out differently from other books about discipline and misbehaviors, please. 
most people don't know what Adlerian parenting is. It doesn't have a, a large brand name recognition. There's so many people that publish or have uh, branded programs like PAP and STAP and all these things, but the word Adlerian doesn't really appear in all the all this literature. So there's a big move towards positive psychology, and there's a lot of parenting programs around that, which is great. And I see a lot of the companion pieces out there. You'll see the use of timeouts or logical consequences family meetings we'll talk about later and I'll think okay yeah this is kind of the same but if you're just a positive psychology person and you're not specifically Adlerian here's where we really bring something additional to the game and that is we don't start sharing information about how to correct a child's misbehavior how to, to do child guidance or discipline, the tools that parents are always looking at, you know, how do I stop them from whining or how do I stop them from being rude or whatever the question might be. We don't start solving the problem until we understand the root cause of the problem. And that's really what this book is about, which is this piece of Adlerian psychology that is not in other modalities, which is something called teleology. That's the big fancy psychological word. It's about looking forward. It's the understanding that all human behavior is actually goal directed, that there's a purpose to the behavior. And when you can understand the purpose to the behavior, then you are much better armed at being able to pick and choose through the different tools that we introduce in the book in order to go about approaching the child's goal in a different way. And the other piece, and I say this in the book, is that everyone looks at a child as being the child is misbehaving. They're doing something that we don't like and that, that it's wrong and we need to correct it. And I reframe that. The Adlerian view says actually that all behaviors are interactional. We call it psychodynamic theory, meaning it's like a dance. So when a child is being irritating and annoying, the parent is also responding to the irritation and the annoyance. And so the two are working together to create a pattern of interaction between parent and child. And that pattern of interaction is not on the constructive side of life. It's not, it's not helpful. It's not what we want to see repeated. And yet we do it over and over again. So if we can recognize that we get into these dances with our kids and that what we're doing is unwittingly supporting what the child is trying to achieve if they didn't reach their goal if it wasn't useful or effective they would stop doing it so that's a real change of thinking for parents to say my kid isn't doing this to be bad they're doing this again and again because it works because it's effective and that it's happening because of our responses to them and that it's pre-conscious. They're not being manipulative. They don't know why they do what they do. If we can recognize these dances, and then if we can change our responses, then we can go about helping our kids resolve their goals, but finding it on the positive, cooperative, pro-social side of life. So it really is robust in getting down to what's at the heart of the matter, then we'll address what are the tools. If I was to sum this up in a nutshell, are you saying that in a way you teach your children how to interact with you based upon your interactions? Right. So I'll give you a great first example that I often explain. You know, when you have a little toddler crawling around, it is their primary motivation to, to grow and learn and figure out the world. So, of course, at some point, they're going to make their way over to an electrical outlet and they're going to want to see what goes on at an electrical outlet. And if the first thing that they discover is that when you touch an electrical outlet, your mother screams, no, don't touch that electricity, electricity. You're shocked. 
You didn't know that was going to happen. It, it's never happened before. You were just learning. You were just curious. That's not a misbehavior. That's just a child exploring. But when the child goes back and touches it for a second time, a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, you're like, hold on a second here. Now they're going in with the anticipation that if I say to my mom, play with me, stay busy with me. And you're like, I, you know, I keep trying to get my mother to get engaged with me, but she won't. But you know what? I know what she will do. I can get her to stop cooking or pay attention to my little brother. If I go over to the electrical outlet, because every time I go over there, she screams and stops what she's doing. And she comes over and, and saves me. It's not manipulative, but they have learned that when I go over and touch this thing, my mother comes flying and attends to me. And so it's in that way that they learn to repeat this pattern. So what was the child's goal? The goal wasn't to be bad. The goal was I want to find a way to engage my mother. And it's just very true that well-behaved kids tend to get ignored and kids who kerfuffle and do things that need to get corrected, get parents' attention. And then we get so frustrated with why do we have to keep dealing with this kid? The motivation is good. It's just they've mistakenly learned to do all these things we don't want to see in order to keep us engaged. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Right. And so in Adlerian theory, Adler paid attention to all these different behaviors and he discovered that if you were to categorize them, he really just found that children under the age of 10 have about four goals. So this is not a complex thing to teach parents, but it is really an important starting point because imagine in a medical model, which if you were to go to an emergency room clutching your chest and telling the doctor that you were having chest pains, the doctors and will not suddenly just crack your ribs open and give you a bypass surgery, they're going to find out, is this actually a heart attack? Do we have an occluded artery? Or did they just have pepperoni on their pizza and they're having heartburn and we need to give them an antacid tablet? You need to know what's going on underneath before you take a course of action. And that's the same with behavior correction as it is with medical correction. And you should be able to recognize four goals. Which of these four dances that we're going to talk about, attention being one of them, as different as the Macarena is from the Fox trot from the waltz and the better and faster you get at recognizing the dance the better and faster you are at changing your responses and helping your child meet their goals on the positive side of life because if you pick the wrong tool and you don't understand the psychological movement you will be frustrated you're gonna say i did all this work i, did, I tried all these parenting tools and i'm still nowhere and these are the kids sadly who get labeled dsm mental health things like you know defiance disorder and they're just not understood Okay, that's very clear. Uh, you claim that misbehaving children are discouraged. Can you explain what you mean by that? Kids who feel good, do good. Kids who feel bad, do bad. The problem is kids who are feeling bad are discouraged, and then they act out according to that discouragement. They're the ones that get the most correction. And the correction from most parents, if you haven't been trained properly, you're probably going to respond in a way that is more punitive or is more likely to discourage them farther. Our bad kids get handled worse and they spiral down into more and more and more and more discouragement. And so kids who are good get all kinds of positive engagement. They get all kinds of opportunities. I'm just thinking in a classroom, oh sure Susie, you can walk the attendants down to the office because you're a good girl and I know you'll come right back. But no, Harry can't walk it to the office because he'll probably get into trouble and he won't come back. So we're not gonna give him any responsibilities in the classroom. And this just furthers his reputation of not being a good kid. We find that when we have these discouraging feelings, these feelings of inferiority, like we're not good enough, we're not fitting in, we're not being liked, 
that's when we make the biggest compensatory correction to our behavior. And so the more you're discouraged, the more you try to overcome it. So, you know, you're kind of like, if I can't be good at being good, I'll be good at being bad. So kids who are, that are not doing well, they need to be befriended and they need to be loved and they need to be given responsibility and they need to be seen and they need to be heard and understood and they need to shine in the family and shine in the classroom. And they're the ones that are least to get it because they think, why should I reward bad behavior? And it's not rewarding bad behavior. We need to fill their bucket especially triple more. Very, very interesting. And uh, I would imagine uh, coupled with that would be the, uh, is allowing them to not necessarily uh, do things as you would hope they would do it the first bunch of times that you give them the responsibility and let that be okay, rather than getting really upset and really worked up and coming down on them for not following through the way that you'd hope them to. You lay out the ground rules, how it's going to work, what it's going to look like with this particular responsibility. And if they happen to fumble over it or make a mistake or not act in a way where they should have or not followed a specific rule, rather than um, labeling them once again or, or making them feel like, oh, they're bad because of that, um, because I would re further reinforce the fact that they, if they already think that they're bad and that's just who they are, and you know, you want to teach them, use it as opportunities to teach them and guide them towards more doing the things that they should be doing, which may take a lot more effort than uh, you may have to say another one of your children if you have multiple children, uh, but everybody needs a different set of attention and a different set of tools. Uh, and I mean, am I correct in saying all that, that that would be the, the correct approach with all this? Yeah, ab absolutely. So, you know, go through, I can give case examples of the application of this, you know, I think we're going to go through each of those, those four dances so that this learning kind of comes to life for parents. Cool. Um, so, but we start with understanding it's a dynamic, it's an interaction between the two, that it's goal directed, that we're participating in it. It doesn't come from a place of trying to be bad. It's, it's a way of trying to compensate and, and reach a goal. And the goal has merit. And there's nothing wrong with kids having attention, for example, the first dance is attention, because that's really about connection. And we're social creatures and we need to connect. Kids that are constantly craving attention have a mistaken belief. I'm only important and significant when you're paying attention to me. And that's not true. You're important and significant to me, even when I'm on the phone, even when I have to change your baby brother's diaper or return some emails for work. So part of it is we need to be able to correct these kids and correct that mistaken understanding that their value as a person comes all the time, not just when you're stopping what you're doing to make them the center of the universe. The one thing I want parents to know is that because we're talking about these four dances, we need to be able to distinguish them. And so the way you know that you're in the attention dance from a child is check first with your emotions. Are you irritated and annoyed? These children, they don't make you mad. They're just, it's just a low level frustration, but it's ongoing. And when you correct them, you know, sit down, pay attention, put that down. No, we need to go now. When you find yourself being very verbal, because that's what they're doing, they're getting you into a useless conversation or pulling you into their service so you have to do things for them. As soon as they get your attention, they tend to settle down. You know, so if they're a kid at the table and they're like bubbling their milk and you say, don't bubble your milk, they'll stop. But then they'll start flicking their peas off the plate. So you're like, don't put your peas on the floor and they'll stop, they'll listen. But then they start like banging their foot on the table and jiggling the table. You're like, don't bang the table. It feels like this all day long. Stop that, don't do that, stop that, don't do that. It's this lapsing, remitting, but it never amplifies. So that's how you know that you're in the attention seeking dance. So the second dance is power. 
being in a power struggle. And it's no longer irritating and annoying. It could start with an attention seeking behavior, right? You're like, let's go, let's go. We're going to be late. You're kind of like constantly having to badger them in the morning. And then at some point you start realizing we are going to be late and you start to get insistent or they really dig in their heels. Now we start to feel feelings of anger. Anger is the cardinal feeling of being in a power struggle. So this is a child's mistaken belief in their mind that I'm only important and significant when I'm either proving that you can't control me or that I will prove I'm in control of myself. They just will not be a puppet or a peon under somebody's thumb. And I think that's a beautiful quality for kids. I don't want a kid who's under somebody's thumb. Parents, because they get this pushback from kids and they get this defiance, then parents feel like, well, if they're going to defy, then I've got to double the control. And of course, then the child triples the control and then you quadruple the control. And so we're in this bid for power. We never get anywhere. That's why we get the amplification. There's like a one upping when you're in a power struggle, like, you know, get in the car. You can't maybe. Yes, I can. I just paid my pants. Like you can feel the acceleration that happens with power struggle. And that's a very different feel than attention. Kids that want power, that's a beautiful thing. It's just, we don't want them to have power over others. We want them to have power that is leadership, that is self-esteem. That's power on the positive side of life. So, so don't try to take their power away. What you want to do is win their cooperation. You want to give them lots of responsibility. You want to give them lots of autonomy. You want to give them lots of choice. You want to give them ways to like problem solve with you rather than dictating to them because we do we tend to give about 200 compliance requests to to kids a day we micromanage them we have so little faith that they can manage they don't even get a chance to show us that they can manage themselves before we're giving directives to children so it's really about stepping back and saying where could my child feel powerful in our family have a voice have a say without me giving all these directives and again is it going to look a little sloppy in the beginning it will but if you actually just hold them accountable with consequences. It's very empowering to say, you know what? I know now that you're going into grade eight. I've been waking you up every morning and nagging to get out of bed, but I realize you really do know how to look after yourself. You're mature enough. I know you can manage that. I'm going to fire myself from that responsibility. So I trust you to do it. Yeah. So the first day they're going to go, no, she's going to wake me up. She can't stand that I'm late for school. She hasn't changed overnight. There's no way because we've provided the safety net of, of overdoing for our children. But if you let them sleep in and they miss their alarm and they're late for school and then their teacher has to talk to them, if you let the consequences play out and you say, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I had a bad morning, but I'm sure you'll figure it out. Two days, three days, four days, one week, whatever it is, they finally will realize that you are not responsible for getting them up in the morning and they will start being responsible for themselves. They like to be responsible. They're just testing. But parents just have such a hard time during that week of watching things go badly or mistakes happening that we interfere again. And we really have to just trust kids to learn from life and to stop inserting ourselves between life and our children. They will learn as the world unfolds and they will manage those consequences. They are, they're, we're, our brain is wired for learning, and but we get this interpersonal stuff that gets in the way. So that's the power dance. It's so insightful. There's so many items that you're mentioning in there that are very counterintuitive, especially as a parent who you see a child going and doing things that are just not effective and not functional and that are making things more difficult for themselves and you want to step in and you want to give them the advice and you want to give them the perspective and, and you want to manage them. It's so painful to see them do things that are just not benefiting them, not serving them, but allowing them the freedom to make those mistakes 
will help them grow. I would love to go in more detail about that, but of course we have so many other uh, dances, as you call it, yes. to go through. Specifically, a one of revenge. The third dancer goal is revenge. Explain how parents would recognize and manage that one. Revenge dance, the feelings are no longer angry. The feelings are hurt. The child is trying to hurt you and they've succeeded and you feel hurt by what they have done. You know, like, I hate you. I'm going to go live with dad. Or if you've got a little kid, they might just say, you know, you're bad mommy. You're not invited to my birthday party. I'm running away from home. They're trying to hurt you. It's important for parents to know that children do not revenge first. They always do it retaliatory. They hurt you in the way that you hurt them. And sadly, we see this in teens who die by suicide that often that motivation can be the goal towards making the parents suffer for having made the child suffer. It's a, it's a terrible thing, but an immature mind can come up with something as creative and dysfunctional as that. And so you might just have a moment of revenge where they um, wanna hurt you back for, you know, maybe you embarrass them in front of their friends or punish them too harshly for that they felt was unfair. You know, I had a mom that took away your kid's laptop and confiscated it for a week and the child felt that that was not fair for what she had done. And so the child uh, revenged by stealing the power cord to the mother's laptop and not telling her where she put it so she couldn't go on her work Zoom conferences and got her in all kinds of trouble at work. So there's a retaliatory quality to it. And once we realize that usually when a child revenges, their behavior is so abhorrent, we tend to really want to come down with the big hammer and they tend to get punished the most. And if we can reframe that and say that this is really about what a hurt child looks like, kind of like, you know, if you touch a dog's mouth and, and they kind of snap at your fingers and then you realize when you pull back their little jowl that they've got an abscess tooth they're biting in a defensive way it, it's it there's a there's a soreness that they're trying to protect and so our hurting kids behave the worst it comes from hurt and we have to ask what have I done to hurt you what's happening in our family that you're hurting so much and it can be just one moment of revenge but there's also kids that are just in a revenge cycle they're so hurt from maybe a, a sibling being favored you know, there's benign neglect happening in a family. So the hurt is like ongoing. If I want a power struggle and I kind of want it in a dirty way, I'm going to get some revenge behavior for my kids, right? That's when they take out the markers and draw in the backseat of your car. Okay. And then the last dance is avoidance or learned helplessness. So that's when there's a real global shutting down of kids. That's not the same as an attention seeking kid who says, I can't do my shoes, do up my shoes for me. That's them trying to pull you into their service. A child who's in the avoidance, they've tried to find their sense of worth and purpose and they've tried everything, attention, power, revenge, they can't find a Way. And so they kind of give up. The emotion that a parent would have, because that's where we're starting in the diagnosis, is you will feel helpless. You're like, we've tried everything. We've medicated. We've sent her to her doctor. We've been to three different schools. She tried living with her dad. Like nothing works. They often have school refusal. It looks like depression. It's just like a, a real global shutting down. We really don't see this until around the age of 10. It's, it's a tricky one. And I tell parents, if, you know, by the time you get to that one in a deep kind of a way, that's beyond what I would teach in a parenting class. And that's more about knowing the yellow flags for when you need to pull in a mental health professional. And what about after the age of 10? And Under the age of 10, there's four, but then I go, but you know, there's also one more if you've got teenagers and that is excitement seeking. We are biologically wired to want to find novelty and thrill. Kids will do that by get into trouble, join a gang, try illicit drugs, shoplift. We don't want that. So since we know that goal is going to be wired biologically into our teens, let's help them find it on the positive side of life. Do they want to sing a song at a coffee shop? That's absolutely horrifying and, and novel. Do they want to do some extreme sport, you know, like snowboarding, which is like very novel and very scary, but you know, they can master it. But you need to load up things in teens' lives so that they don't go seeking it on the negative side. You claim family meetings are critical. Yes, because when we have family meetings, it's about creating a democratic structure in your family. It is about working on those underlying beliefs that I only matter when I'm getting 
getting attention that I only matter when I'm showing you can't control me. It's working its way in a therapeutic way at helping the child feel encouraged, getting rid of those discouraging feelings, feeling important in the family, making contributions, feeling heard, helping design the family together. And so when you use that, not just a once a week, we're going to sit down and I'm going to tell you what the new rules are. When you really do it and it's true democratic, we're in this together, we're a family and you matter. Everybody's voice is, is as important as the others. When you get that true feeling of team, so many of those discouraging feelings go away. And then a lot of these misbehaviors dissolve with it. A lot of parents say, oh, it's too much time. And we tried them and the kids didn't like them. And I'm like, I don't care if the kids didn't like it. It's so fundamental to the change in their mental health and behavior. It's a non-negotiable. If you want to have a healthy family, you really have to have this going. It's hard work, but it's necessary. During those family meetings, how can you set things up in such a way where you're not pointing fingers at, at someone in particular? If you have multiple children, then one might feel like there's some favoritism because you're pointing out things with one child and not with the other. Is there a way that you can kind of go about the family meeting and talking about all the things that need to be discussed in order to make sure that everybody, is, well, the children especially, feel comfortable and you're still also feeling like you're reaching the goals that you need to? So it is a complex skill. And to your point, there's certain times where I'm just in the moment, child guidance or disciplining a child, and I'm not going to spotlight them in a family meeting. But if I just say, hey, you know what? You know what we don't do well in this family? We don't do car trips. People always seem to fight about the radio station and they fight about who's sitting in what chair. And, you know, we have to go to grandma's next weekend. And I'd really like to resolve how can we get all get in the car and make a trip to grandma's and do that in a way that has less conflict than we had last week. So I'm not saying Johnny was the one who didn't like the radio station. I'm not naming who is the problem person. And even if the other children are saying, well, he's the one, he's the one. As the chair of the meeting, I say, hey, listen, this isn't about going back and waving the finger of blame at people. This is about going forward and how we're going to do it differently and better next week. And I would actually probably defend the one that's being picked on and say, it sounds like you had trouble in the car. You didn't like how everyone was yelling at you. What can we do to make your journey better? You're important to this family too, because the one who's misbehaving is the one who's discouraged. So when you slow down the meeting and say, hey, 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 just a second here. I want to hear his point of view. He's got a perspective on this too. We, you know, And you don't come to an answer until you have consensus. You don't vote because the discouraged child is always going to put the anti-vote in. If you say we're going to go to grandma's and we're all going to go swimming, they're going to say, I want to go bowling because they want to prove that you're out to get them. And a great way to kind of wrap that up is to just sort of say, and if we can't decide on something we all want to do, we won't do anything. We'll wait until the next meeting and solve it then. Then everyone's going to be like, okay, wait a minute, hold on a second. We'll get to consensus. But don't give up on them is what I'm saying. They're super important. And looking for some sort of unanimous agreement I'm, I'm imagining is what you're looking for. Like that's a great thing. You say, look at, well, look, we'll see, we'll try, and if it doesn't work, we'll tweak it. My kids, we probably talked about family chores and had different versions of family chores for different ages and stages of my kids' life. That probably came up once a month. It's just we look, we see, we try, we tweak. You know, find out what worked, what didn't work, and you know, either make changes or throw the whole idea out and try something new. What a beautiful thing to model to our children as problem solvers. Okay, beautiful. Okay, and then when should parents reach out for professional help? Well, as I mentioned, that fourth dance of avoidance, uh, learned helplessness, hopelessness, I think is uh, really means that you need to see a counselor for sure. But we don't need to suffer as long as we suffer. The sooner we nip a problem in the bud and get some support, the more your family is going to get to harmony quicker. So don't wait until things are like so problematic. One or two phone calls with a coach or a therapist or a family counselor or a play therapist can really bring about some big change. I don't wait until something meets a diagnostic criteria or you're absolutely ripping your hair out. Just say, you know what, I think our family could be doing better than this and I need some support around that. So I would invite anyone at any time to get some support for family life. A lot of times it can just be a little one degree shift and that's enough. You know, and once you understand the problem, when you see the dynamic and you see where the discouragement is coming and you address the root cause, then all of a sudden, all this behavior across the whole week improves. It can be that a small tweak makes a big difference. Now, that's not to say some long-standing problems, you know, 
I say, usually with attention seeking, if the kid has a real belief that they need to be noticed to be important, you might be looking at three months to work with an attention seeking child, six months for power struggle kids. Sometimes parents are on the right track for improvement and they just give up too soon. I was like, you're doing, you were doing so great, but you only did it for three days, not three months. (laughs) It's just the process takes a little bit longer when you're going to somebody's core beliefs. If I told you that the world is flat instead of round, you'd probably go like, yeah, you know what? I want to hear a little bit more about that because I'm pretty sad on what the way I believe it. We should be critical about new information. And that's fair. It's okay to be critical and it's okay to experiment a little bit with information from a trusted source. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we are pretty much at the end of our time together. I, I hate to say I'm, I'm always enjoying this so much, uh, hearing all the information you have to provide. Um, I'd like to thank, of course, Allison Schaefer for joining us today. Thank you for joining this Inventive Minds Child, Youth and Family Support Center workshop. Visit www.inventivekids.com to learn about the many other workshops available coming up soon, just like today's. You can connect with Inventive Minds via email at inventivekids, again with a Z, at gmail.com for any parenting challenges so their professional team can connect with you. Thank you, and we look forward to seeing you all again. Thank you so much, Allison. Take care. See you. Bye. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining this Inventive Minds Family Center workshop hosted by myself, Adam Stavis, your youth development mentor and coach. Today's workshop topic is wonderfully titled, Honey, I Wrecked the Kids, (laughs) Understanding Why Children Misbehaved. Inventive Minds Child Youth and Family Support Center is a not-for-profit organization helping families and children. They also provide parenting courses and mediation for families. They also help families by creating parenting plans, child support, spousal support, and asset evaluation. Connect with Inventive Minds to learn more about their school, new mom services, their therapist and practitioner for day-to-day parenting challenges, support programs for newborns to teens, and adult group support programs for reconnecting with your children and emotionally attuned parenting. Uh, To clarify, I am a youth development coach. Make sure to check out inventivekids.com slash events, as well as other parenting workshops, courses, and events. Thank you.